Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. You'll find that in your copy of Scripture. I love how uh, Dustin and Mike prepare our music each week. They look at the Scripture text and think about what passage of Scripture, what song fits the passage of Scripture, and uh, I know sometimes we sing new songs, songs, I've never heard that song before, but it is a beautiful fit for what we're going to talk about as we finish up our sermon today and our third point. Uh, what is it that God wants to do? He wants to transform us. He wants to change us uh, into the description of what, he's, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's a glorious text of Scripture. Um, I want you to think about the context for a moment. Verse 1 says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, the disciples came to him. This is uh, the greatest sermon ever recorded. Probably the greatest sermon ever preached. Um, and it is a glorious testimony to what Jesus wants for those of us that are a part of his kingdom. Last week we talked about Jesus inaugurating his kingdom, beginning it with the announcement of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, how he initiated that with his ministry. And then what he did is he brought all those crowds together to teach them this sermon. And you think about who's in the crowds. There, there are all sort of people there. There are people that are troubled. There are people that are broken. There were people that came to Jesus out of curiosity. A neighbor or a family member was sick, and they said, Hold on, we've heard about this man who can heal. And so they went to meet Jesus, and the text in chapter 4 tells us that he healed all of those who came to him. Whether they had you know, broken bones, or whether they had mental disorders, or physical disorders, or blindness, or demon possession, or oppression, they all showed up. Jesus healed them, and that's who made up the crowds. The, the crowds were those that had been touched by Jesus or those who, had been, who were curious about that. So they gathered around. Jesus went up on the mountain. When he went up on the mountain, he gathered his disciples around them, so they're a part of the crowd too. And I think he has some special language and, and lessons in mind for those 11 followers Obviously, Judas was the twelfth, but you know he, he didn't really follow through with Jesus' expectations and commands. He, he had an expectation for them. And then, obviously, there are the religious leaders that are there, too. Part of the Sermon on the Mount is a polemic against some of the misunderstandings of the law, misunderstandings of God that the religious leaders and the Pharisees had. But, but what, I, what strikes me, though, is that, that Jesus began this sermon had all these people around him. I mean, there are probably thousands of people in the crowd, right? And, and he's preaching this sermon that if you read it, it's about 12 to 15 minutes for you to open up your copy of Scripture, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 all together. Some of you are already thinking, if Jesus could do it in 15 minutes, how in the world does it take my pastor 30 or 40 minutes to preach a sermon? Well, a couple of things about that one. One, Matthew recorded for us, uh, I, I think, the framework of what Jesus taught. I think he taught longer on that particular day, either in different segments. These represent the segments that he dealt with in detail. Uh, or he taught further that Matthew just didn't record, at least for our benefit, everything that was written down. He recorded these three chapters. 
wonderful books of the Bible. And there are some interesting things that are, that are taking place here in the book of Matthew. Jesus went up on the mountain. A clear allusion to Moses going up on the mountain to receive the law of God. Jesus went up on the mountain to give the law of God. So Matthew is connecting Jesus to Moses, talking about how he is greater than. So you've got all these crowds, Jewish people, disciples, the curious, the people touched and healed, the people that fit the, the perspective of a religious person, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, they were all there. Jesus had this massive audience and the first word out of his mouth, blessed. Blessed. He didn't start with a criticism. He didn't start with a, with a calling them out for their sinfulness. He's going to do that. He didn't start with a bit, a bit of information. He didn't start by going back to the Old Testament and giving an explanation. He said, blessed. That word is makarios. It can be translated happy. But that would be a, a, a misunderstanding of what Jesus is doing with that word in the text. If, if we think about it happier, those, then it carries with it the idea that, that the experiences are circumstantial. Meaning that, that when we feel this way, we're happy. And, and I'll be honest with you, there are times all of us as followers of Jesus should feel the presence of God, should feel his pleasure, should feel his blessings. And we ought to be able to say at certain times in our lives, we're happy at what God has done in and through us. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's not getting at a subjective state, how you feel. I want you to get this. Jesus looked out across the crowds and he said... You're blessed, and you're blessed, and you're blessed. And then he defines what that blessing looks like. In other words, the blessing that Jesus offers is an objective statement from the King of kings and Lord of lords. Think about this. Jesus, the one who knows everything, he knew what had brought that person to the crowd that day. He knew what they had faced. He knew what they were walking in with. He knew their troubles and their struggles. He knew their pains. He knew their hidden parts of their lives. He knew the things nobody else knew. And he says to them, blessed. Beatitudes are a glorious start, a startling, striking introduction to a sermon. We're going to read through verse 20 today, and we're going to think about these paragraphs, the Beatitudes and the salt and the light and Jesus and righteousness from the perspective of who is it that Jesus is inviting to be a part of the kingdom? We're not going to deal with every detail that we could, we could look at in those paragraphs. We don't have time for that. But we are going to see the type of person, the character traits of the person that God has invited to be a part of his kingdom through the message and the ministry of Jesus. Read with me, beginning in, in verse 2. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them. Remember, the crowds, the disciples, the religious leaders taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. First character trait of those that Jesus invites to be a part of his kingdom. Kingdom citizens are blessed. Objectively observed by God speaking into the lives of those that are his, he says about them, they are blessed. Who is it that are blessed? Let's look at what these Beatitudes teach us. First, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Spiritually impoverished. One way to think about it would be spiritual bankruptcy. Recognition that we don't have what it takes in and of our own righteousness to enter into the presence of God and to experience His goodness and grace. We're not good enough. Our good enough is insufficient. It falls short, staggeringly short. And Jesus looked out across the crowds, and I am quite sure that there were people in that gathering who came to Him absolutely helpless. They had gone to their priest, their priest couldn't help them. They had gone to family members, their family members couldn't help them. They had gone to neighbors, and their neighbors couldn't help them. They had gone to the synagogue, and they weren't helped there either. They were at the end of themselves. They were at the end of their rope. They were truly helpless. They were the poor in spirit. And I can imagine as Jesus is preaching this sermon, looking out across the crowd and noting that one and that one and that one and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who realize that they are not good enough, that they need something that extends beyond them, that goes deeper than them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A word about that. We're going to see a lot of promises that happen with the blessings. And they're good promises. They're meant to be experienced here and later. There's an element that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom. So the kingdom of God begins now with those of us that receive Jesus. But ultimately, there's a future fulfillment as well. The, the meek inheriting the earth. That is going to happen in the future. The fact of seeing God, maybe seeing God in, in, in a sense, we'll see him now in an experience that we have. But ultimately, that's going to happen when we meet God face to face. But it is a beautiful Reminder that the blessing that Jesus offers to those in his first audience and to those of us some 2,000 years later is that here and now we can begin to experience the blessings that Jesus promises. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What do poor in spirit people do? That's the next beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is mourning? It's confessing. It's acknowledging our our shortfall and, and, and our lack of... In other words, John Stott put it this way, that we all ought to confess, and we do that when we gather in worship services. 
Every time we gather, we ought to have a note of, of how far short we fall of God's standard and spend time confessing. In fact, one of the priorities of the Christian experience, and Jesus even taught us this in the model prayer, is that we're to ask forgiveness as we're willing to forgive others. Why? Because we constantly fall short of God's expected standards. But Stott acknowledges that those who mourn it go a little deeper than just confessing and go to the attitude of contrition. What is contrition? It's an acknowledgement of how far short we fall of God's standards. The spiritually broken, the spiritually impoverished, the spiritually bankrupt shed tears about how far they fall short of God's expected standards. Yet Jesus says to them, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The words of the hymn, Rock of Ages, come to mind. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the person who mourns. The person who realizes they have nothing except God. What happens after you mourn? What happens after you acknowledge your, your shortfall before God? There's a recognition of who you really are. You're meek. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined the meek this way. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. The meekness is the, the right character, characteristic that flows out of the shortfall that we bring before God. When we're spiritually broken and impoverished, we realize that, that in and of ourselves there's nothing to be proud of. And so we come to God and we bow before Him in confession and contrition and graciously God says about us, you're blessed. And God offers us blessing and privilege. All of us know people in our lives who like to peacock, they like to preen, they like to show off who they are. All right? Some of you have worked for people like that. Everything is about them. They want everybody to know their name. They want everybody to know their authority. They want everybody to know their goodness. Right? Some of us have lived with people like that. Family members and friends, spouses, children, parents. And it's difficult to be around somebody who everything has to be about them. We see that in our world system. We see that in politics and in culture. That there are some people that they just can't be... Well, they're never content. But, but they, they, they constantly make everything about their name, their glory, their power, their privilege, them. That's not the person that Jesus calls blessed. The, the meek person is the person that is amazed that anybody thinks of them well at all, at all. Because they know who they really are. They know that they're spiritually impoverished. They, they know the tears that they've shed over their sinfulness. So that's what meekness is. It's the natural result of what God has done in our hearts and in our lives. And then they replace that, that self-knowledge, or not replace, but that self-knowledge leads them to seek after things that really matter, which is the next beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. There are a lot of people that hunger and thirst after a lot of things. Some of you, if I mentioned lunch... Your stomach would start growling and you would, you would be thinking about what you're about to eat, whether it's a restaurant or a crockpot meal that, that you're going home to. Some of you can smell that now if I, if I draw attention to it. 
Some of you are like, why did he have to bring that up? Now I'm going to be distracted the rest of the service. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not after physical food is what Jesus says, but, but have you ever been really, really hungry or really, really thirsty? And you just had to have something to eat. You had to have something to drink. And, and you remember how that meal or that drink of water satisfied you in that moment. Well, Jesus is saying what we ought to seek after are the satisfaction that comes with righteousness and goodness. Only be filled with what God wants to give us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He goes on to say, blessed are the merciful. It was the prayer that our praise team sang, asking for mercy. What is being merciful? It's not treating others as they deserve. Folks, let me just tell you something. We've not been treated as we deserve. We deserve a sinner's hell, separation from God, and eternal punishment. God hasn't given us that or hasn't automatically resigned us to that. He's shown us mercy by giving us an opportunity to know Him and be forgiven. And here's the reality. Changed people, by the mercy of God, show mercy to other people. We ought to be the people that can forgive. We ought to be the people that don't hold against one another their faults and their sins. Why? Because we've been shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful. He goes and says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Obviously, this word, the idea of purity, has an implication with moral purity or purity with regard to what we see and think, and Jesus is going to deal with that when he... It deals with the issue of lust and adultery later on in chapter 5. But I, I think the primary sense of what he's getting at here in this statement, blessed are those who are pure in heart, carries with it the idea of integrity. This is a person that's not afraid for anybody to know what goes on in their lives. John Stott defined it this way, these are the utterly sincere. Their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. Their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed, with anything devious, ulterior or base, hypocrisy and deceit are abhorrent to them. They are without guile. Yet how few of us live one life and live it in the open? I think what Jesus is getting at is blessed are those who don't have different masks for different people. Blessed are those who are unafraid of people knowing what's going on in their lives. And I'm, I'm not talking about some of you that are, that are intentionally private and, and you hold things in your life close to your, yourself and your friends. I'm not saying that we need to live open lives about every vulnerability that we have. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But here's what we ought not live like. We ought not live with hidden compartments where we'd be afraid of somebody knowing what's there. Blessed are the pure in heart carries with it that the things you see and the things you listen to and the things that you do and the things that you think, you'd be okay with a spouse knowing that, with a pastor knowing that, with a friend knowing that, with a neighbor knowing that, certainly someone you trust. But, but you're not afraid of, of what integrity means. Your life is one life. Blessed are the pure in heart. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. For they shall see God. How about this one? We could spend a whole sermon on this one. Blessed are the peacemakers. Because we live in a world of war makers. And I'm not just talking about the, the geopolitical definition of war between countries. We live in a world where conflict is the norm. To get our way, we've got to stir up a little conflict and create tension. That happens in jobs, workplace environments, relationships. It happens at Thanksgiving meals. 
and Christmas dinners when we have extended family over. And unfortunately, it happens in the homes in which we find ourselves with husbands and wives and children and parents and the tensions that, that derive there. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Why does he say that? Because, beloved, Jesus came to offer us peace. He came to give us peace with God. And he says that if we have peace with God, then the way that we react to others ought to be a way of peace. Then he says, blessed are the persecuted. That's a strange one. Peacemaking leads to persecution? Well, absolutely it did in Jesus' life. And it did for the disciples. I think, I think he had his disciples specifically in mind with this one. He was looking at those 12 that were there. Obviously, Judas would betray him. He was looking at those 12, the 11 with particular, particularly in mind, knowing what they were going to face. That on his account, because of his righteousness, because they were going to follow him, they were going to face persecution from the religious leaders, from the Jewish leaders, from Romans, from people all over the world. They were going to face persecution. Blessed are the persecuted, Jesus says. Blessed are you when people revile you and mock you. And, and to be honest with you, if you're anything like me, when you read this list of Beatitudes, and you think about what it really means that Jesus is saying, this is hard. These are challenging statements that our Lord can make. And we know they're true because our Lord made them. I mean, this, this, is not, this is not my assessment of something. This isn't somebody else and everything in Scripture is true. But these are the words of the Lord spoken to and about us. And it's why over the last 2,000 years there have been extreme interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people have read through the Sermon on the Mount, especially with the Beatitudes, and they've come up with, hold on a second, nobody can keep this. It's not possible. So uh, guess what? We're all off the hook. You, you, do, you, do, you can just ignore it. Some people have read into it that it was only for unbelieving Israel because of the timing when Jesus gave this. And so the Christian church can ignore the Sermon on the Mount and just kind of walk away from it. Some have just simply observed that because it's impossible to keep, it's just a reflection of our weakness and our shortfall, and we don't really have to try. Jesus has already done all the work. And to be honest with you, those are extreme interpretations. Jesus gave us the words of the sermon. In the latter part, chapter 7, we'll get there. He said, blessed are the ones who keep the words that I have spoken to you. And he says here, blessed are those who teach them and those who don't ignore them. Jesus has an expectation that you and I are the blessed ones. That we're the poor in spirit, that we're the merciful, that we're the pure in heart. He expects his followers, the people that are a part of his kingdom, the people that are citizens in, in relationship with him, he expects us to be these people. He expects us to be the blessed ones. Dallas Willard describes folks this way. He said, these are God's grubby people. If, if these people are totally nice, then it's a sure sign that something has gone wrong. For here are the foolish, the weak, the lowly, the despised of this world whom God has chosen to cancel out the humanly great. Among them, that means among God's uh, blessed ones, there are indeed a few of the humanly wise, the influential, the socially elite. They belong here too. God is not disturbed by them, but the Beatitudes is not even a list of spiritual giants. Often you will discern a peculiar nobility and glory on among these blessed ones, but it is not from them. It is the brilliant radiance of the kingdom among them. 
Folks, here's what God expects of those of us that have come to him. He expects that we'll be the blessed ones in the way we live our lives. That we'll have the characteristics that show his goodness and his greatness. Why does he want that? Because he wants to display us. Kingdom citizens are displayed. That's the second character trait. Look at verses 13 through 16. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. It would be understandable if Jesus looked at his crowds and he said, I'm the salt of the earth, I'm the light of the world, and I want to reflect my goodness and glory through you, or on you, or with you. That that would have been understandable. In fact, sometimes I wish that's exactly how Jesus had worded that phrase, or those, those paragraphs. That's not what he said. He looked at the crowds. He looked at the blessed ones. He looked at the ones that he identified with as the keepers of the Beatitudes. And he said to them, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What's he saying? He's using two metaphors to get at what he wants his people to be in the world. One metaphor is largely negative. That would be salt. It's a preservative. The other metaphor, light, is largely positive. It's to, shine, to, to show what people need to see about God and his gospel. The salt of the earth is a preservative. It was used as a preserving agent in the ancient world. It was, it was not a commodity. For us, it's a commodity. It's something that your doctor tells you to use less of. You know, the table salt in your, in your meals... But it's necessary. In the ancient world, it was necessary. They didn't have refrigeration. The way they preserved meat especially was by rubbing it with salt. It's a preserving agent. It mattered. And if it was useless, the text tells us that it was just thrown out. It was full of waste. It was completely unimportant. And he tells us, you're the salt of the earth. What's he saying about us as Christians? That we are to be the preserving agents in our world. In other words, you and I are to act in a way that makes the world, and I don't mean this tritely, makes the world a better place. That's what Christians are to be. Craig Blomberg puts it this way in dealing with both of these metaphors. He said, both metaphors of salt and light raise important questions about Christian involvement in society regarding all forms of separation and withdrawal. We are not called to control secular power structures Neither are we promised that we can Christianize the legislation and values of the world, but we must remain active, preservative agents, indeed irritants, in calling the world to heed God's standards. We dare not form isolated Christian enclaves to which the world pays no attention. His point is simply this, that we as Christians, who are the blessed ones who have been changed by Jesus, who God has has said about us, we're blessed, we're, we're part of his family, we're part of his citizenry, He wants to display us so that our world changes because we're in the world. So what does that look like? Practically, it it, it looks like what Jesus did. There's a reason the Sermon on the Mount comes after chapter 4. What did Jesus do in chapter 4? He met people when they were facing demon possession and oppression. He met people where they were sick and hurting. He met people where they were broken and disturbed. He met people who were... The spiritually impoverished, and he walked with them through their tragedy and their difficulty and their trouble. And you know what? That's what we as the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are to do to preserve our world. It, it looks like some of you, when you go sit with a church family member who's grieving, and you bake them a casserole or bake them a pie, and you walk over to their house or drive to their house, and you sit down with them and you just let them cry. 
That's what being salt looks like in our world. It looks like the team of of church members, several from our church and from other places, who are in Honduras right now. They're meeting people where they don't have access to doctors or medical technology. They're going to villages, remote villages, and they're being doctors and nurses, meeting people in the brokenness of their physical bodies and touching them and helping them and meeting their needs. Why do they do that? To be the salt of the earth? To, To minister to those who have need? It looks like when you help someone who can't read to learn how to read so they can read their Bible better. Or help someone who doesn't speak English learn ESL, English as a second language, so they can read and communicate in our world. It looks like those of you that volunteer in our kids' ministry with with Awana and with Sunday School, where you sit down with children who are, some of them are, are genuinely struggling with issues at home and love them and care about them. You do realize that the behavior problems we have with our kids are because, one, our kids are sinners. But two, sometimes our kids are going through situations in their homes that, 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 are, that are difficult and challenging, circumstances and emotions and, and all kinds of things. And you know what? When we stop and sit down and learn and listen and love them, we're being the salt of the earth. This morning at our breakfast, we hosted uh, Robert Willis, who's the director of CareNet Counseling. And he talked about what CareNet does to help people navigate mental health and challenges and difficulties and and all sort of things. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. You and I as Christians are to preserve the world in which God created. We're to bring about the kingdom by making people's lives better. And and I don't mean that in just the, the overused sense but sharing and showing the love of Jesus so that someone's able to navigate the brokenness that they're dealing with. We can't solve their brokenness, but we can point them to the Jesus who can. And our love is often a means by which that happens. That's why he goes on with the positive metaphor and says, you're the light of the world. God doesn't just want us to, to do good deeds and, and, and hold people's hands and give people drinks of water. and Those are wonderful things and things absolutely necessary in, in Christian life. Of all people, Christians ought to be loving people in our world because we're the ones who've been changed by the Savior who loves us and cares for us. We're the blessed ones. That's what Jesus says about us. So that ought to be what we do in order to. Tell them about Christ, who is ultimately the reason who can change their lives. You're the light of the world. Lights aren't to be hidden. They're to be displayed. Look at that last verse. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What does God want to do? He wants to show His goodness and glory through you, so that as you speak, because you've ministered to people and loved people and cared for people, you can point them to the Jesus who can change them. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven are blessed. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven are displayed. God doesn't want to show you off. He wants to show your works off that show the glory of God. That's what he wants from us. It's not about us. It's not about people knowing and seeing us. It's about people seeing the works through us that point to the greatness and glory and majesty of God. Say, Pastor, this sounds a little idealistic. A little difficult. How, and, and this is really what Jesus expects of me? How is this possible? How in the world can I experience the observed statement of God, Jesus, that we're blessed? How in the world can I live a life that's worthy of being displayed? Look at verse 17. 
Jesus anticipated those questions. Anticipated some arguments he was going to get for some later things he would say too. And he said this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus goes on to say, I I didn't come to do away with the law. He's going to say six times in in chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And one of the criticisms of that is that Jesus was changing the law or abolishing the law or ignoring the law. It's not what he was doing at all. He was coming to fulfill the law and extend it, extend it for a particular purpose. And and this gives us encouragement. By the way, it's the reason why our, our worship services begin with Scripture, why we read Scripture, why we try to memorize Scripture, why we preach from Scripture, why we believe in the authority of Scripture, because Jesus has said here his view of Scripture is that not a dot, not an iota, that's, those are, those are uh, like, like, like punctuation marks in Hebrew, they will not pass away until everything else is accomplished, meaning that God's Word will stand. It's the framework by which we ought to live our lives. That's Jesus' view of Scripture. An important, encouraging statement, challenging statement. Then he says something that is rather striking at the end of this. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, he talks about those who are poor in spirit will enter heaven. And here he says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, That's a challenging statement because the scribes and Pharisees were those that were exceedingly righteous. They had recognized 248 Old Testament laws with 365 unique prohibitions that they intended to keep and they preached that others should keep in order to make sure they were obeying Moses' law and the laws they added to Moses' law so they never broke Moses' law. That was the way the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scribes operated. They were the people that on the outside, they looked like everything was right. Uh, in, In some ways, I think that Jesus' sermon would have been understood by all of those in the the community if Jesus had said, blessed are the scribes and Pharisees, for they keep the law. If he had said that, they would have gotten it. Oh, okay, that's what law-keeping looks like. It looks like observing all the outward laws. But that's not what Jesus says at all. He says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. What's he saying? What Jesus is saying is your righteousness cannot be merely outward. It can't just be that you keep the letter of the law. It can't just be that you're not a murderer or an adulterer. It cannot just be that that you don't break an oath. It must be that your righteousness exceeds that. It, It means that your righteousness needs to be in both heart and hand. That your righteousness needs to be in the inner motivation as well as in the outward expression. The word righteousness here is diakosine. It's a Greek word that carries with it the idea that righteousness is about what, what makes a person right or good. It's more than just outward action. It carries with it inward expectation. Paul uses it in that sense in Romans chapter 3. I would encourage you, if you have some time this week, compare Matthew 5 to Romans chapter 3 and see Paul's use of the word righteousness. And what Jesus is saying is, we need that kind of righteousness. So here's the question. How do we become the blessed ones? How do we live a life worthy of being displayed? We have to be transformed. 
Kingdom citizens are those who have been transformed. Maybe you're sitting here and legitimately you say to me, Pastor, the Beatitudes are not me. That is not how I live my life. Or maybe you say, uh, sometimes I do. I get it occasionally. I'm, I'm, I'm on this one. I get the hunger and thirst after righteousness several days a week. That would be true of me. But some of these other ones, I'm not entirely sure. I've not been very merciful lately. I, I've not been a peacemaker. I've been a war causer. It's not me. And, and I'm certainly not living a life that's worthy of being displayed. How, how, does, how does this come about? It comes about through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Only God can make us into this. Only Jesus can change our hearts from the sinful, broken, uh, helpless people that we really are into something that's worthy of being displayed. That is the work that Jesus does. And he does so by embodying the sermon that he preached. I stand before you today and I have the privilege of preaching regularly and I thank God for that privilege and for that calling. Uh, And those of you that are in the room that have preached sermons... Reverend Al's here, uh, and, 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 and others, you know, you've got to know that we preach out of, uh, out of a sense of authority in Scripture uh, and, and out of a sense of this is the goal for me as well. I, I don't measure up to the sermons I preach. I, I'm not the embodiment of the sermons I preach. I try, and I seek God, and God, God works in me, and He changes me regularly, but I'm not the perfect embodiment of this, of this sermon. But Jesus is. When Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, He meant it. And, and when He says all of these hard things that we're going to read about in the rest of the sermon that are difficult for you and me, I want you to know Jesus perfectly gloriously, wonderfully fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law that he spoke and the message that he preached. And beloved, we ought to be gloriously thankful he did because the only means by which you and I can be forgiven and redeemed is if there's a Savior on a cross who took our place. And the only reason he can take our place is because he is the one who acted as the full substitute for our sins because he fulfilled the righteousness of God. And he knew that. In fact, when he preached the sermon, he knew that that was exactly what we needed to grasp. He knew he was the fulfillment of it. Go back to the persecution section. You'll be mocked and reviled. Matthew connected the dots. And if you look in Matthew 26 and 27, Jesus was mocked and he was reviled. The experience that he said you're going to have is the same experience that Jesus himself had. Folks, God has called us to be the blessed people. He has called us to live according to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. He wants to display your life and my life as instruments of His glory to the world. But the only way that can happen is if we've experienced the transforming power of Jesus' grace. If we've come to Him as those who are spiritually impoverished, realizing that apart from God through Jesus Christ, we can't be forgiven and we can't be rescued. Maybe you're here this morning and, and, and you're a Christian. You're a follower of Jesus. You know you've met Christ. But you look at the sermon and you look at the expectations of what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And you're like, I'm not, I'm not sure, I, I, I'm not sure I, I stand up to those expectations. I fall short. Can I say lovingly, welcome to the club? 
let's go back to the beginning. Why don't we admit to God today that we're spiritually impoverished and we need Him and we know He wants to transform us and we know He wants to display His glory through us. Why don't we come to Him and ask Him to do just that? Some of you are here today and you feel like you're too broken for that to take place. you got too much stuff going on in your lives. Go back and read the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes were for the broken people. They weren't for the folks who had it all figured out. They were for the ones who admitted that they didn't have it figured out, that they met Jesus. Some of us are incredibly broken. Some of us are truly spiritually and relationally impoverished. Folks, Jesus was talking to you when he said, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Or maybe you're here this morning and and you find yourself in that place saying, uh, I've never met Jesus and I've not been transformed and I've not been changed. But if this is the vision of what God wants for his people, I want that. I want the peace that is provided here. I want the the testimony of the Sermon on on the Mount. That's what I want for my life. Remind me of a, of a young man who was talking to an evangelist after a worship service. He said, you preached about peace today. You preached about what I can have in Jesus. And, and he said, what do I have to do in order to have the peace that you preached about? The evangelist looked at him and he said, uh, you're too late. And the man's eyes got really big and he said, I'm too late to be saved? The evangelist said, no, you're not too late to be saved. You're too late to do anything. Jesus already did everything some 2,000 years ago. What you need is to come to Jesus who has already made the way possible for you to be forgiven. Folks, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Yes, he wants us to live by the ethic of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's going to rub up against our behavior and our desires and our attitudes. And thank God it does. And he wants to change us and transform us. And it starts in a personal relationship with a living Savior. Today, if you need to come and meet Jesus, I'd be happy to talk with you about how that can happen. Maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those with a burden, with a circumstance, with a trouble. Maybe you just don't match up to the expectations of the sermon and you need to come talk to Jesus about it. Let me tell you something. He's here waiting to talk to you. He's here waiting to meet you. He's here waiting to give you the peace and the affirmation that we need through him if we'll just come to him the way he invited us to, helpless and in need. Stand with me, if you will. Our Father, admittedly so, we're spiritually poor. Too often, we don't actually realize that. Too often, we think we match up and we line up and we're good enough. But truly, We're not. Pray that today, for those of us that are your followers, that that are a part of your your kingdom, I pray that we would admit our, our weakness, admit our spiritual poverty, and come to you and seek you. And Lord Jesus, that we would experience your transforming work and your displayed glory through our lives for your praise and for your honor. Lord, I pray for those the one or several in the room this morning that have not yet ever trusted you as Savior. They, they want this life to be their life. They want the peace and the, the, the certainty of being a part of your kingdom. Pray that 
today would be the day they would bow their knee before you as king and they would seek your forgiveness and they would experience the life you came to give. Lord, we plead your help and grace and we thank you for your transforming power. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.